You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Samuel 11 and 12, we come to a sad passage where we will see David, the man after God's own heart, act with no fear of God. The events before us today mark a significant turning point in the book of Samuel, and indeed not just in Samuel, but all of redemptive history. David has had a meteoric rise, hasn't he? Starting in the shepherd's field, and the Lord has elevated him to the throne of Israel, to an expanding, growing kingdom, the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time. And through every trial, every tribulation, David has thus far acted with faithfulness and integrity. And the Lord has blessed David. The Lord has blessed his kingdom, so much so that God had covenanted with David to make his house secure forever. But ever since man's fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, we have awaited the one to be born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God has promised that redemption will come through the offspring of Abraham. And as numerous Israel began to grow and expand as they entered into the covenant of their Lord with Sinai, as the Lord brought them into the land of promise, the the only component of the promise that God had initially made to Abraham that we're waiting for fulfillment is the promise of worldwide blessing, that the nations would be blessed. But there was no king in Israel, at least during the time of the judges. But David has now come. The king has now arrived. Worldwide blessing seems to be coming. And through David's godly rule, the blessing of God seems to be going every which direction, north, south, east, west. And so now we're raised with the question at this point in the narrative, is David the one, the new Adam, who will fill the earth and subdue it for the glory of God? Will David be the one who will crush the head of the serpent? Will he be the one to overcome sin and evil? Will David be the Messiah? Will he be the redeemer? Will he be the savior of humanity? After all, what we've seen so far of David is he seems to be the the sort of man who honors God's word, who rules with God's justice, who's generous, who cares for the lowly. But as high as our hopes are coming into 2 Samuel 11, we are flabbergasted, stunned, dismayed as David commits an egregious and vile and wicked sin. Not just a sin, but a cascade of sins. What a strange aberration this chapter is to the man that we've come to know in this book. It seems so out of character for David. This is not the David that we've come to know in Samuel, but yet his actions here expose Genesis chapter 3 repeating itself. The fall is happening again. David, his sinful heart is exposed. Sinful heart that had always been there, but now is exposed in a public, horrifying way to us, and it shows that David is not the guy that we're waiting for. He points to the guy we're waiting for, but he's not the guy. David is a sinner who also needs redemption, just like all of us. 
As David once lamented at the start of 2 Samuel, oh, how the mighty have fallen, so too can we say here of King David. But yet God will keep his covenant to David. And though there will be lasting consequences to David's actions, God will preserve his promise. The Lord will forgive David. The Lord will restore David. And though these chapters are a painful entry, they provide clarity that David is not the one we're looking for. We still have hope, though, by the end of chapter 12, that the Messiah is coming, and he will come through David's line. In the chapter prior, in chapter 10, David engaged in a war with the Ammonites. The conflict halted for a season during the winter months, but the battle resumes in the spring, and the scene is set at the start of chapter 11, and we see David make a curious choice. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. In verse 1, as the chapter starts off, we're expecting more material like chapter 10. We're expecting that we're going to get more chronicles of David's military battles. And we're taken to the front line. We see that Joab leads the army to besiege the Ammonite capital. But the scene shifts away rather abruptly, away from the exciting drama of the battlefront, and we're taken to Jerusalem. We're going to have to wait to see what happens to the Ammonite war. In fact, we won't find out what happens there until the end of chapter 12. But for now, the narrator shows us that Israel's greatest threats, Israel's greatest danger actually isn't on the battlefield. It's in Jerusalem. But David remained at Jerusalem. Notice the contrast. Israel's army is out laboring in battle while the king stays home in leisure. David chooses on this occasion not to go out to war. Perhaps he was exhausted, tired after years of struggling to establish his kingdom and building his kingdom. After all, we could say, well, he needed a little time to himself. Every, everybody needs that sometimes. Or maybe we thought, or maybe he thought he earned a break from his kingly responsibility, which was to go out with the army. Whatever his reason, his choice to stay behind in Jerusalem, it was a foolish one. David's idle hands exposed them to temptation. And David, in a dereliction of his duty, gave an opportunity for his flesh. And here is David at the height of his power, the height of his wealth. The kingdom is secure and growing. He is safe and protected in the citadel fortress that he's built for himself in Jerusalem. He's guarded in his beautiful house of cedar overlooking the city. What could possibly go wrong? David is safe. But David seems to forget that the greatest danger isn't the gnashing of the Ammonites, but his own sin-stained heart. David's greatest threat is not an outward foe, but the inward sinfulness of his depravity. Have you forgotten this, like David? Have you forgotten that the greatest danger you face is not an external one, but an inward one? It's the sinful lusts and desires in your own heart? We are perhaps never more at risk of succumbing to temptation than we reach the height of our success. When we are at ease, 
when we've arrived in our careers, when there is plenty of money tucked away in savings, when others recognize us and value us for our contributions, friend, that is when you are at most spiritual risk. Leisure and success cause us to forget to be watchful over our own souls. We neglect our Bible reading. We skip a few Sundays. We stop praying. And before long, our hearts, our sinful heart is vulnerable to such temptations. Is there any wonder why the so-called midlife crisis leads so many men and even women to do stupid and sinful things? When things are going well for you, that is when you must be the most watchful. And when we sense that we have begun to ease off the gas pedal of our spiritual duties, when we drift off into a spiritually leisurely mood, that is when our souls are most in danger. Our fear of God begins to wane. Our entitlement begins to grow. Our self-justifying inner lawyer begins to make excuses for our indulgences. And we start our subtle Spiritual slipping. And then gravity of our own sinful hearts begins to pull at us. And from our amazing heights, we have a spectacular fall. After all, if David could commit such a sin as we're getting ready to see, couldn't you? Couldn't you do the same thing? Who among us has lived with such faith as David has lived? Who among us has trusted in the Lord's word like David has proven? Who among us has has exhibited a fear of the Lord like David has exhibited in his kingship? And yet here, this impressive and godly man succumbs to boyish lusts that are lurking within his own sinful heart. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. David's sin is described briefly and matter-of-factly, almost like a quick, rapid jab into the gut. His actions shock us. They bruise us. They horrify us as they're recounted. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. We see David here at leisure, seems to be enjoying an afternoon nap on the couch when he decides to take a stroll upon the roof. David's home was the largest home in the city. It was also the highest point in the city, meaning that as David stands on his balcony and overlooks the city, he had a clear view of every rooftop in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, a beautiful woman bathing on the roof catches his eye. Now, why is Bathsheba bathing on the roof? Most likely, she's purifying herself in accordance with Leviticus 15 after her menstrual period. She was not being immodest. She's not being provocative in any way. In fact, the rooftop was out of the view of every other person in Jerusalem and every other home. It was the most private place for her to follow this purification ritual. 
but David saw. And rather than darting his eyes, he gives thought to the woman. He allows his lusts to dwell, and he fans them into flame. He inquires about the woman. He learns her identity. Her name is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Who are these fellas? Both Eliam and Uriah are listed in 2 Samuel 23 as some of David's mighty men. If this is the same Eliam, as is mentioned in 2 Samuel 23, then this means that David had most likely met Bathsheba before and that she was a generation younger than David. And with this in mind, David acts like a creepy older man, gawking and drooling over a woman who is old enough to be his daughter, a young woman he might have very well watched grow up. And this young woman was both the daughter and the wife of two of his closest soldiers and most loyal companions. We don't get much insight into whether David wrestled with this temptation. Did he deliberate? Did he resist the temptation in any way? And what about Bathsheba? We don't get any insight here into her mind. Did she willingly participate? Did she resist? We simply don't know. But what we do know is that she is placed and put in an impossible and a vulnerable situation as the most powerful man in the world summoned her and took her. Notice the verbs in the text. It should alarm you. He saw. He inquired. He sent. He took. He lay. David, the decisive king of Israel, decisively acts without any deliberation, and commits the sin of adultery. And so David acts with no thought of his friend Uriah, no thought about Bathsheba, no thought about his kingdom, no thoughts about his Lord. He acts with no fear of God before him. Here he is acting like a man playing out his lustful fantasies. The selfish David uses Bathsheba as nothing more than an object for his own pleasure. There's no intimacy here. There's no commitment, obviously. There's not even a conversation recorded between the two of them here in the text. David is simply using her body for himself. David violates the word of God, and in fact, by his callous indifference to the Lord, makes himself to be God. David violates the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, David says, I'm going to do that anyway. Thou shalt not commit adultery. David said, I'm going to do that anyway. And soon as we'll see, he will commit another commandment, violation, thou shalt not murder. David is elevating his own desires above the word of God. The sexual ethic of our age has only one criterion that is nigh impossible to apply. And it's the criteria of consent. In our culture, your sexual act and your sexual partner do not matter so long as it's consensual. And as we begin to discover in the last several years, the parade of sexual freedom has left behind only a wake of carnage and abuse, broken families, exploitation, particularly of women and children. Consent is too flimsy of a moral standard to protect women and children from such evil. Was David and Bathsheba's adultery consensual? We don't know. Probably not. 
But by our culture's amorphous standard, David's sin could be lessened in our eyes. His sin of adultery could be lessened to just simply a permissible affair. But, but our culture's ethic doesn't sit right here, does it? As we try to apply it to this text, consent, who, who cares if it's consensual or not? It's sin. It's wrong. It's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the reason it doesn't sit well is because the sexual ethic of our age is a lie that comes from the pit of hell. God has given his good law governing our sexual behavior for a reason. God is a good God. His boundaries are for our flourishing. God has designed our sexuality to be used and enjoyed positively within the relational intimacy and covenantal commitment in marriage. God's design for our sexuality in this covenantal commitment is it's a good thing. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for our society. It's a good thing for the glory of the Lord. If you're here today and you've embraced our culture's sexual ethic, have you ever considered that sex without marriage only exploits other people's bodies for your own selfish pleasure? You're doing the exact same sort of thing David is doing here. Have you ever considered how pornography depersonalizes men and women to make them only fleshly husks for your own eyes? Have you ever considered that the sexual revolution has not made our world better in the last 40, 50 years? but has only actually escalated sins of abuse, the plight of fatherlessness, and the breakdown of the family. We see in David's life here on display that this sort of sexual ethic of our culture, that it brings only carnage and pain to those around us. Perhaps you are here this morning, you can testify. Often a testimony of tears, isn't it? The brokenness of the carnage that Pornography addiction can bring to a, a person's life. Perhaps you know the pain of sexual abuse. You know the devastation of a family ripped apart by adultery. To the heartache, emptiness. Another person uses your body, their own selfish use, only to discard you away, all the while calling it love. As this month of June is co-opted by our sexual revolutionaries in this culture, relishing in this so-called free love, you know, you know in your soul that the whole thing is morally bankrupt and it's not free, it is costly and it destroys you and it's devastating to your soul. But what you need, what our culture needs is repentance, corporate, communal-wide, country-wide repentance by recognizing the wisdom of God's word and guiding us in our use of sexuality. Our way leads only to selfish ruin, but God's way leads to life and blessing. But David leads his life to ruin. David had hoped for a one-night stand. He had hoped for a quick, casual encounter, and he rather quietly dismisses Bathsheba so callously, isn't it? Dismisses her to just go back home and live in the secret shame of her violation. But Bathsheba contacts David. She's pregnant. And this leads to a crisis in David's soul. How can David's sin remain secret if Uriah's wife is pregnant while Uriah is on the battlefield fighting David's war? So David compounds his sin even further by seeking to cover it up. 
So he arranges for Uriah to come home and plans for him to lay with Bathsheba in order to trick him into thinking that the baby in her womb is actually his. Here David seeks not only to deceive Uriah, but he is also planning to abandon the child that he has brought into the world. Let's keep reading and see the horror of what David continues to do in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah was a Hittite, but he here is a true convert of Yahweh. In this passage, he acts more like a true Israelite than anyone else in the passage. Uriah probably wondered why he was summoned away from the front lines of battle to go back to Jerusalem and to give a report. Seems like a strange choice. Probably wondering why he's there. But upon his return to Jerusalem, we see that he refuses to go home and to lie with his wife. Because for Israel, war was a holy activity, one by which the men chose to abstain from sexual activity until the battle was over. So David should have ought to have done the same thing in solidarity with his troops. Indeed, he had to be out there on the battlefield with them. But here we see the loyalty and the faithfulness of Uriah as he refuses to go home and be with his wife. David even attempts to get Uriah drunk in hopes of loosening up his morals to get him to go home. But he doesn't go. And Uriah protests. Listen to his words. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and allow with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's words should have immediately convicted David. Here is where David should have confessed his sin to Uriah. But yet David doesn't do that, does he? He hardens his heart. And he labors even more intently to try to conceal his sin. What about his reputation? What about his legacy? Repentance and confession seemed far too costly in David's eyes. Confession seemed too humbling. So David labors to lie. He labors to conceal. Hiding is our natural response when we sin. We do this in all sorts of ways. We can close off our hearts to those who are closest to us. We can withdraw and distance ourselves from the fellowship of the church. We can ignore the messages of those who most deeply love us and are concerned for us. Secret sinners love isolation. So does the devil too. One of the gifts of living openly in a church family that knows you 
and loves you and has covenanted with you to be watchful over your soul is that hiding becomes a lot more difficult. Godly community has a way of exposing our hearts. The fellowship of saints can be powerfully redemptive if we have the courage to lay down our hearts bare, not only before the word of God, but before our fellow brothers and sisters. Because the opposite of hiding is confession. It's confession. And it's through confession of sin to one another that the Lord unshackles our hearts from our lusts. James tells us this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you are struggling with hidden, secret sin this morning, you must confess it to someone. The Lord has been gracious to you, friend. He has surrounded you with his saints who love you, who have committed to bear your burdens, who have committed to administer the gospel to you in your struggle, who have committed before the Lord to come alongside you and to help you in your struggle with temptation and your help of repentance. So approach an elder after church this morning and tell them you need to talk. Find a brother or sister this week and confess your temptations. Confess your sin if you've committed it already. Confess your sexual lusts. Confess your secret adultery. Confess your bitterness of heart. Confess your gluttony, your greed, your envy, your unforgiveness, your anger, your laziness, your fear, whatever it may be, do not follow David's pattern here. Do not conceal it. Those who follow David's path of concealment will only spiral into further and further sin. Humble yourself this morning. Repent and confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. But things keep getting worse for David. The spiral of sin continues. Let's keep reading in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the, there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an, uh, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. The irony here is incredibly thick, isn't it? In order for David to cover up his sin, he must conspire for Uriah's murder in battle. And to achieve his murderous ends, it all depends on the faithfulness of Uriah in order to accomplish it. The very man that he is wrong to not only deliver the letter to Joab faithfully, but to not Read the letter along the way. David's whole treacherous plan depends on the faithfulness of Uriah to deliver the notice of his execution. Joab follows through with the instruction. He prepares the messengers to report to David, and the messenger is given instructions on how to deliver this bad news to David. 
even though David knows, uh, even though Joab knows that this is the news that David wants to hear. Let's read what happens next in verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the battle, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David's callous in his indifference at the death of this man. He, he, it shows here just how much sin has had a hardening effect on his heart. Because it was not just Uriah who died. There were others who died because of David's order. But David brushes it off with sheer indifference. Who cares? His plot was accomplished. So he reports back to Joab, don't let this matter displease you. Sword devours one every now and then. In other words, David says, who cares? It's war. People die. No big deal. All the while secretly rejoicing that his conspiracy had worked. Uriah was out of the picture. Bathsheba is now a widow. He can marry her quickly, cover up the sin of adultery, and that's exactly what he does. Let's read about it in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In David's mind, at the end of the chapter, he's done it. I did it. Sin covered up. But of course, the sin of adultery was covered up by many more sins, wasn't it? Deceit and murder. And so it is when we commit sins and seek to cover them up. One sin spirals into many, many more sins. But as David takes Bathsheba into his harem of wives, his son is born, David thinks he did it. He covered his tracks. His reputation is intact with no messy entanglements, embarrassments, or humiliation along the way. Yet the chapter ends with a sobering reminder. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord or alternatively translated, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord sees all. Before his eyes, we are naked and exposed. In your secret sin, you may be able to fool me. You can fool your other elders. You can fool your fellow church members, your spouse, your closest friends, your children. But you have not fooled the Lord. You have not fooled him. You cannot conceal your sin from him. He knows exactly what you have done, and he reckons his judgment on your behavior. His judgment may be delayed, but his judgment will come. And you may attempt to cover your sin with even further sin. You may conceal your actions from those around you. You may excel at being an imposter, hiding your heart from those who know you best. But the Lord sees. But the Lord is also faithful to his promise. And even though David had abused his power to take what was not his to take, to violate a married woman, to execute a godly man, and to lie to cover his own sin and protect his reputation, the Lord made his promise back in 2 Samuel 7. Do you remember it? that the Lord would discipline David. 
and that by the Lord's steadfast love, he would not depart from his servant David, even amidst many sins. The Lord will restore David once again unto repentance. But the grace of repentance that David need, and this grace of repentance that you need this morning, comes through the conviction of God's word. What the callous heart of King David needs right now is the word of the Lord. And so the Lord gives David what he needs. He sends his prophet, and he sends him with the rebuke of his word. Nathan comes up, and we read his interaction here. We're going to read it in its entirety. In order to experience the drama here of David's hypocrisy, Nathan's boldness, and how the word of the Lord humbles and convicts. Let's read, starting in the beginning of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. What a blessing it is to be rebuked by the word of God, to be called out in our sin to be confronted with our hidden treachery. Friend, that is the Lord's grace to you. As Nathan begins confronting David, 
he does so with a story of a man and his lamb, and it serves as a rhetorical trap of conviction for the king. As David hears the story, he assumes that Nathan the prophet is bringing a real case that as king, he must require judgment on. And as the story progresses, the rich man steals and butchers this little lamb beloved by the poor man. The abuse of power, the injustice of the case outrages David, and David pronounces the judgment. This man deserves to die for his crime, and a fourfold restoration shall be ordered. Little does David know that the judgment he pronounces is judgment on himself. Nathan, with remarkable boldness, says to the king, you are the man. As the prophet heralds God's word of judgment, the Lord exposes what was secret. He brings it to the light. He names with specificity exactly what David had worked so hard to cover up. The Lord rebukes David for this sin, particularly because of the way the Lord had blessed David. The Lord had done everything for David. He had given him everything. And God says, David, if you wanted more, I would have been even more generous to you. All you had to do was ask, but instead you violated the word of the Lord to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord recounts David's sin with such specificity. David wanted to hide it. He didn't want anybody to know what he did with Bathsheba, what he did with Uriah, but the Lord has now brought it to delight. Notice how specific Nathan is. You killed Uriah, you took his wife. The Lord announced the consequences of David's actions. The sword will not depart from his house. While David's reign has been thus far one of peace and stability and flourishing, now through the remainder of 2 Samuel, it will be one of conflict and tension. Rebellion will come from within David's own family and the injustice David caused by violating another man's wife. David will publicly experience himself as a neighbor will violate his wives, not just in secret, but publicly on a rooftop. The events will come to pass during the rebellion of Absalom as David's son publicly shames and dishonors him on the rooftops before the eyes of Israel. The, the conviction of God's word and its condemnation is unpleasant, but it's gracious. It's gracious to have the word of God expose what you have worked so hard to conceal can feel devastating. Maybe you feel that this morning as God's word has done just that. But there is blessing in the brokenness. There is grace in the conviction. Perhaps through the preached word, the Lord is doing this right now. The Lord is uncovering your sin before your eyes. It's being exposed. And if that's you, do not resist the Spirit's work. Do not resist it. May the Lord continue to break you under the conviction of sin in order to rebuild you and restore you and to forgive you by his grace. Do not just be broken over your sin, but repent of your sin. David was a man just like all of us a man with sin. But what makes him the man after God's own heart is what he does when confronted with sin. When Saul was confronted with his sin of presumption, what did he do? He made excuses. He justified himself. He brushed it away like it was no big deal. In fact, he even argued with God's word and God's prophet and the verdict that God had given. David does no such thing here, does he? David's response is short but it's a serious acknowledgement of his sin. There are no excuses. There's no self-justification, no explanation, only acceptance of the Lord's rebuke. I have sinned against the Lord. David would pen a psalm that we read at the start of our service this morning. 
Psalm 51, that captures the detail of his confessions in this moment. In Psalm 51, David says, Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And we can kind of scrunch our eyebrows a little bit and say, David, really? What, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? And by such a comment that David makes in that psalm, he's not, he's not arguing that they hadn't been sinned against. Of course they had. But what he recognizes is that the primary party offended by his sin is the Lord. And what breaks him, what grieves him, what humiliates him more than anything else is that he had done wrong against his Lord. When you're confronted with your sin, either by the preached word of God or by a friend who loves you enough to bring the rebuke of God's word to your life, what is your response? How do you respond? Do you make excuses? Do you argue it away? Do you attack the messenger? Do you justify yourself and protect your own wounded conscience? Or do you humbly receive the correction? Do you own your own sin? Does your heart become grieved and broken? How ultimately you haven't just sinned against your brothers and sisters or your family, but you have grieved against the Lord. We can measure the spiritual maturity of a man or woman by how they respond to godly rebuke. And though David sinned in horrifying ways, he humbles himself in true godly repentance. David is not a man who repents just because he got caught, but because God's word pierced his heart. David experiences the grace of godly repentance. Listen to his words in Psalm 51. This is not a man who's just got caught. This is a man who experiences true godly sorrow. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you, for me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Go home this afternoon and read Psalm 51 again. When you sin, do you respond like that? Do you experience that level of brokenness that David communicates in that psalm? David did. And it was through his repentance that the Lord showed him grace. Because though the consequences of our actions and David's actions here, they're severe, David's going to have to endure the consequences of these actions for the rest of his life. But the Lord will preserve David's life. And do you see the Lord's grace here? His forgiveness. David's consequences are less than what David had prescribed for himself. Remember, David unknowingly pronounced death on himself. The Lord shows, God, shows mercy to David. More mercy to David than David would have shown to himself. He does not strip the kingdom from David as he did with Saul. The Lord preserves his covenant with David. He fulfills his promise. And even amidst the spectacular fall of King David, he chooses to discipline David as his son. The sword that will ravage David's house will be severe, but yet David shall not die. The Lord will keep David as his king. David's forgiveness comes not only through repentance, but also through substitution. Though David will not die, his son will. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? 
he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. The child David conceived through this adultery became sick. And as David fasted and pleaded for the Lord to spare the child's life, on the seventh day, the child died. And David is so emotionally devastated over the consequences of his sin during those seven days that the servants begin to worry about him. They don't even want to share the news that the child actually passed away in fear that David would harm himself in some ways. But David's response surprises the servants. Once he receives the news of the child's passing, he stops grieving, he washes his clothes, he goes and worships the Lord, he eats dinner. The change of demeanor is just flabbergasts the servants. Why would he fast and weep while the child was alive and then act normal once the child was dead? And David discloses that he did so in prayerful hope that the Lord would be gracious and spare the child. But now that the child is gone, the child cannot be brought back. Verse 23, David hopes to see the child that he, will, that he lost one day. It's interesting, the word of the Lord doesn't tell us much about what will happen to those human persons who die in the womb or die as infants. But yet for every miscarriage, every stillborn child, every passing infant, we have hope in the goodness of God who will show undeserved grace to those precious souls. And verse 23 is the clearest text in the Bible, that the Lord will be gracious to babies lost and that the saints should hope to see them again. The taking of David's son as a substitute for David's own life establishes the template of God's redeeming grace. At the heart of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the act of substitution. The child's life is taken instead of David, and these events point us forward to the redemption to come in Jesus. Because for David to be forgiven of his sin, there would be atonement required. And it would come through a son, not the son here that dies, but his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come. The substitution of this baby serves as a bit of a placeholder for the son of David to come, the biological son of David, who would also be God's own son. And the Lord Jesus Christ is his name. And at the cross, Jesus lays down his life in the place of sinners like you, like me, like David. And though we deserve to die, though we deserve the cross, Jesus substitutes himself and endures our death in our place. And the blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin. The Lord Jesus doesn't cover up our sins with deceit. Instead, he covers our sins with his own blood. And as the son of Bathsheba dies due to David's sin, the Lord provided David and Bathsheba with a new son, a son named Solomon. 
And while the son lost captures the need for substitution for our sin to come in Jesus, the babe Solomon announced here points forward in hope that that future substituting Messiah is still coming and it's coming through David's line. The Lord will graciously preserve and restore David's house. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant is still in effect. David's shocking sin in chapter 11 will not deter God's sovereign plan to redeem the world with a king through David's house. Let's read about it in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Amidst the tragic consequences of David's actions, amidst the grief of the child lost, and the dark fallout of David's sin, here Solomon shines with the light of God's promise. Solomon is Israel's next king. He is born from David's union with Bathsheba. Solomon's unique role is highlighted as the prophet and Nathan announced that he is the beloved by the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. So what ought to amaze us here as we come to the end of chapter 12 and these events is the Lord's gracious redemption in them and his restoration of his promise. Though David commits adultery and murder, the Lord furthers the promise through David's marriage with Bathsheba. That the woman David stole becomes the woman through whom God furthers his promise of redemption. Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is filled with all sorts of unexpected surprises. But one such comes right at the start. Matthew's genealogy, chapter 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And there it is. God takes David's sin and brings forth his good purposes through it. The better David would come from the womb of Bathsheba. The substituting savior that David needs and that we all need will come to us in Jesus. The brokenness of conviction, the pain of repentance, it's humiliation, it can be devastating. But yet the Lord is gracious to forgive and to redeem the consequences of our sin to accomplish his good purposes in our lives for his glory. Perhaps you've sinned this morning in some devastating ways that have left a lasting and massive consequence upon your life. Praise the Lord this morning. Not only does he offer you forgiveness as you repent of your sin and put your faith in that substituting Savior, but Christ can redeem you out of that sin. He can redeem those circumstances, and he can restore you by his grace for his glory. If you would but confess your sin to the Lord this morning, you can be forgiven. And though you may still bear some of the consequences of those sinful actions in your life, the Lord can redeem them to bring great good in your life through your failure. So do not hide or conceal your sin any longer. You don't need to cover it up. Come now into the light of God's presence and let the blood of Jesus cover your sin. He can redeem you. He can restore you. The final episode of chapter 12 brings us to the start of chapter 11 again. Israel undertaking the siege at Reba, the capital city of the Ammonites. And here we see David's repentance comes full circle. The Lord not only forgives David, he restores his blessing upon David. Let's read about it 
in verse 26. Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Notice the repentance here. Notice the change. David doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He goes out to the battle that he was supposed to be at in the first place. He completes the conquest of Reba. He takes the crown of the Ammonite king, and it's placed on his head. And it's a massive crown. It's a talent of gold, probably 65 to 75 pounds. Not one you just wear walking down the street. And so the Lord gives David the victory here. He blesses him yet again, even with his incredible failure, and he crowns his king with many crowns. And we are reminded that the Lord, after all is said and done in chapters 11 and 12, the Lord remains true to his word. He will not abandon his king. Trouble is getting ready to come for David. But this victorious epilogue of chapter 12, we see the blessings of God that come from the grace of repentance. For those of you under the conviction of sin this morning, may you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Repent of your sin. Don't hide it. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and rejoice that Jesus is the king whom the Lord has crowned with glory and honor. And that crown he has laid up for you by his grace, that crown of righteousness, that our blessed Savior has taken on your crown of thorns so that he might share with you his crown of righteousness. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would save sinners, that you would expose our sin, and that you would shine us with the light of your grace and mercy by repentance and faith in your King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.